from the newsroom of The Washington Post. It's Robert Samuels from The Washington Post. Post, this is Sarah Kaplan. Hi, this is Elahe Azadi with The Washington Post. Hey. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, April 21st. Today, why it's taking so long to ramp up testing. The story we haven't heard about young people and coronavirus. And fundraising in a pandemic. We have a great testing system. We have the best, right now, the best testing system in the world. For the last several weeks now. We have tremendous testing capacity. Testing is expanding very rapidly by millions and millions of people. President Trump has been saying that the U.S. is winning at testing for coronavirus. That's something, right? We're doing a great job. We're... But according to senior national affairs correspondent Juliet Alprin, President Trump's narrative on testing doesn't give the whole picture. As of Monday, the U.S. has reported doing about 4 million tests. This is through kind of cumulative tracking, partially that's being, you know, crowdsourced and what's being reported by states and so forth. So that means just over 1% of Americans have been tested for coronavirus so far. And that does not seem like a lot. We've heard a lot of stories anecdotally of people who feel sick, who have called their doctors or hospitals saying that they have symptoms of coronavirus, but have just been told to stay home and who can't get access to a test. So what is the issue here? Even though millions of people have been tested so far, why can't we extend that to a greater part of the population? There are a number of real challenges that have dogged testing from the outset. Obviously, initially, there was a problem with the tests themselves, and there are still ongoing questions about accuracy with some of these tests. But in terms of the real impediments right now, there are really some basic components to the tests themselves that have been one of the biggest obstacles. The fact that there aren't enough nasal swabs needed to administer the test. These aren't like the Q-tips that you can buy at your local drugstore. There are reagents that you need for processing the tests, things like that. There's the capacity of labs across the country to process all these tests, but essentially the supply chain and the technicians that are needed to process diagnostics are some of the biggest challenges that we see in state after state across the country. And and when you say that there is a shortage on the materials that are necessary to conduct these tests or a shortage on the people and the manpower to be able to process them, why is that? Like, why can't they hire more people? Why can't you find more of these reagents and swabs so that we can just have more tests? There are just a lot of different factors that play into this. Testing is a highly regulated industry. So, you know, they don't have enormous supply chains at times because you have to jump through a number of hoops to be, for example, approved by the Food and Drug Administration. And so we just don't have a precedent in the immediate past where you've had such a jump in demand for these highly specialized medical products. And as a result, you just can't Put in a turnkey, it sounds kind of incredible because, you know, we have, for example, GM has shifted operations to create ventilators and things like that. So it seems sort of incredible to most Americans, the idea that we're talking about a swab. Why can't everyone, you know, turn around and start producing swabs or 3D printing them? But right now it has been very difficult 
to ramp up production in this area when you consider that there, you know, specifications that go through to this ultimately, you know, to make sure there's accuracy. And then who is paying for these tests? And does that have anything to do with the fact that people are having trouble getting access to them? Consumers themselves have these tests covered, and so it's a combination of insurers are paying for it. The federal government is also covering part of that. One thing that's interesting is that Medicare just a few days ago doubled the reimbursements it was providing for these tests. It had been $51 per test, and Medicare increased that to $100 per test. That made testing for COVID-19 profitable for labs. Before then, it hadn't been. And even though these labs are working overtime to process coronavirus tests, they're not getting as many tests for everything else that people used to go into the doctor's office for. So, for example, one advisor that a colleague of mine talked to, to California Governor Newsom, said that would go from making the profit margins on processing a COVID-19 test from almost nothing to 50 percent. So theoretically, that might increase the capacity for testing if there's more of a financial incentive for hiring more technicians and investing in more infrastructure to be able to process more tests. Exactly. So what are the different kinds of tests that are currently in use? And are some of the tests that people are using more reliable than other tests? There are certainly different tests that are are being done right now that basically determine whether or not you have the disease COVID-19. And so there are ones that take, you know, a couple of days to get analyzed. And then there are these rapid tests that a bunch of listeners have obviously heard about Abbott Laboratories has one test that's been in high demand lately. There there are a couple others of these rapid tests that can give you results within, say, 13 minutes. And the rapid tests, are those the same ones where you put the, the thing kind of up your nose and swirl it around a little bit, or is it administered in a different way? I mean, for the most part, they, they involve that. There are different kinds of tests, but certainly the nasal swab, what you're talking about, is, is used including for some of these rapid tests. For these tests, what's happening is that there is certainly a what we call a false negative rate, that there are a number of times that, you know, you might get a negative result, but in fact, you might still have the virus. It's, it's worth noting that if you get a positive result from any of these diagnostic tests, it's highly likely you do have COVID-19. But in, in some instances, there might be a false negative for a number of reasons. One is that because these diagnostic tests are checking to see whether you're shedding the virus, if you're in the early stages of the disease, that you might not be shedding enough virus to have it come out as a positive. There's also what they call serological tests. These are the ones that are trying to determine, have you developed antibodies, meaning that you did have the novel coronavirus, but you've recovered from it. And part of the issue there is that the Food and Drug Administration, in an interest to get these tests on the market, approved dozens of them under an emergency use authorization. They wanted to have these out and essentially said as long as the manufacturers are explicit about the fact that they have not gone through the same kind of rigorous federal testing that you normally have, they could have people take these tests. But the challenge there is that there's some real concerns about the accuracy of this type of testing. In terms of the distribution of existing tests to people who are 
pretty gravely sick. I mean, it seems like the like there's a very clear priority that if someone is hospitalized, if someone is showing acute symptoms, then those are the people who should get tests. But isn't there an argument to be made that those are the people who you know have coronavirus already, so you don't have to give them tests, and instead you should be prioritizing giving these tests to people that we're not so sure have coronavirus and who have been exposed but don't have any symptoms so that we can try to contain the spread? Yes, that's an understandable question. And I think certainly we've seen, you know, for example, recently Michigan expanded its testing criteria and said that people with mild symptoms should also get tested in addition to people who are most severely ill. You know, this is a very fluid situation. And initially, one of the reasons why the priority was on, for example, the sickest patients was because they wanted to make sure that appropriate precautions were being taken in the hospital to protect everyone who would be dealing with such patients. So is there a recognition that that needs to change? Like, ideally, would we be giving out tests to people who we don't even think are actually sick, but just checking in case? Yes. The idea, most experts will tell you that we need to do a greater testing effort targeted at people who do not have symptoms. I've talked to professors and doctors across the country who say if they had their way, they would test everyone. And that that would be the way that you could tell how pervasive it is in a population. But what would it take to execute that on a massive scale in a world in which you were testing not 1% of the American population, but 10 or 20 or 30%. It would take a huge ramping up of our testing capacity. So, for example, the Rockefeller Foundation has been working with both corporate and state leaders to try to figure out how much testing you would need. And they're talking about ultimately the country needing 20 million to 30 million tests a day to restore sufficient confidence that people can get back to work on a regular basis. By comparison, we are testing roughly around 150,000, 160,000 people a day right now. It's a, it's a huge gap between where we are now and where we would potentially need to be. You know, we've, we've heard from a lot of governors who are seriously concerned that their states aren't getting enough tests, that they don't have the ability to test anywhere near the number of people that they should be, despite the fact that President Trump is saying over and over again that people who want to get tested have the ability to get tested. So what are the concerns that governors have about this? Well, there's no question that governors, regardless of party, have said that they need more federal assistance when it comes to tests. And so it's not just Democratic governors who are complaining. We've had folks, including Mike DeWine from Ohio, Larry Hogan from Maryland. It's not accurate to say there's plenty of testing out there and uh, the governor should just get it done. Um, That's just not being uh, straightforward. Who are saying that they lack sufficient testing capacity, and they want the federal government to do more. Every governor in America has been pushing uh, and fighting and clawing to get more tests, not only from the federal government, but from every private lab in America and from all across the world. It's pretty extraordinary that you had Governor Hogan's wife, who's Korean-American, actually help negotiate the import of 500,000 coronavirus tests that are going to be deployed throughout the state of Maryland. Those are kind of the extraordinary measures that governors are taking to ensure that their constituents have the supplies they need. It's worth noting that there has been a big push, especially from some Democrats in Congress, though they have been joined by some Republicans, to devote more federal funding 
to testing. And so we are certainly there are ongoing negotiations to devote $25 billion to this issue as part of the next stimulus bill. And so I think you'll you'll see that being one of the things that's underway. And what is at stake if we don't increase testing? <sighs> Lives are at stake. That's probably the simplest way to put it, that, that essentially it is extremely difficult to track the spread of the disease, trace the contacts of the individuals who are ill, and then take action to quarantine people who are sick or in some cases isolate them and get them care, which ultimately is the most effective means of curbing the spread of the outbreak. Juliet Alprin is a senior national affairs correspondent for The Post. Earlier on in the pandemic, as this mentality of, you know, everyone stay home to flatten the curve was, I think, just starting to really sink in for people. A lot of what you saw about the younger generation in the news was these people who were on their spring break and they didn't care that there was a pandemic going on and they were like partying on the beach in Miami. We're just out here having a good time. Whatever happens, happens. With the bars being closed, you know, we'll find alternatives. Unfortunately, it does suck. The bars and restaurants are closed, but we'll find ways out for it. And people were justifiably, you know, really frustrated about that. This cannot be a normal for our community. There was a lot of anger, and I think it played into this stereotype of Generation Z, which is people born from like 1997 to around 2012, as kind of like self-absorbed. But I mean, Gen Z isn't this like monolithic spring breaker block, but I mean, they're the generation that was behind the March for Our Lives movement. They're behind this giant worldwide school strike for climate movement that Greta Thunberg founded. And so they have become this political force. My name is Hannah Knowles, and I'm a general assignment reporter for The Washington Post. And how has that political activism been trained on this pandemic? The pandemic might just kind of underscore this emerging political identity they have, which is, again, they're not a homogenous group, but they're fairly politically liberal. I mean, the oldest ones supported Bernie Sanders by huge margins. More than their parents and their grandparents, they really think that government should be doing more to help people. And so they grew up caring about a lot of these issues that we see now, like exacerbated and really coming to the forefront in the coronavirus pandemic. And so they see this as kind of a moment that's just sharpening these issues they already cared about. And so you see a lot of young activists who, you know, even as their schools are shutting down, like prom is canceled, their graduations might not happen. They're really kind of busier than ever. They're on Zoom calls, they're organizing, and they're incorporating this crisis we're seeing right now into some of like the broader messaging about these political movements they've been involved in for a long time. And what are some of the issues that they're advocating for in the context of the pandemic? Yeah, so one of the young when I talked to Emma Rehack, she's a high school student in New York City who's been working on like affordable housing and a lot of other issues there before the coronavirus hit. And so now she's hearing lawmakers talking about, um, you know, we need to halt evictions. We need to end utility shutoffs in the context of this pandemic. Um, and she's on the one hand, her response is she wants them to go even further. She wants them to just wipe out a few months of rent. I don't want to speak for anyone else's experience. But definitely for all of my friends or neighbors who, you know, are considered non-essential workers and have a kind of job that they can't do from home, 
those are jobs that we're putting them already in a position where you have to struggle to pay rent and you're kind of living on a paycheck-to-paycheck basis and that struggle is like expanded. She believes that, you know, there's no way a lot of people in New York City will be able to pay that back given the like massive unemployment right now. And then on the other hand, she's also seeing these like trillion dollar rescue packages that Congress has approved, all these drastic measures that are now suddenly politically viable. And she's kind of wondering, like, can we get in the long term some more attention and more action on these issues that she's already been advocating for a while? These packages and recovery legislation has been made. They exist. Um, There's community support behind it. And so it's just a matter of approval and implementation. One thing that I think is interesting about this is that, yes, there are a significant number of younger people who have gotten sick from the coronavirus and and a number who have died. But this is primarily a thing that is affecting older people, elderly people, and that you see numbers of people who are hospitalized who die skew very much toward the older generation. So what do Gen Zers see in this fight for themselves or or why does it feel so kind of potent for them? Yeah, well, I think, first of all, they definitely do see themselves as affected by the pandemic. I mean, even as they feel like they are less likely to have, you know, a serious health situation as a result of the coronavirus, um, they do see it as a big threat to society as a whole. And they see it personally as a large like economic threat because young workers are more likely to be part of those like service sectors that are going to be really hard hit. So they definitely are feeling like the effects of this very personally. But then also, like they said, I mean, they see they, they care a lot about issues like inequality. They care about this idea of like big drastic changes in our society and our government and the way that we help out um, average Americans. And so I think they see this very much as like not just a passing crisis, but for activists in this generation, this is kind of a, a potential opportunity where maybe people are a little bit more open to their ideas, where maybe this could be a political turning point and they want to, you know, see some longer term change from this. And what were some of the conversations that you had with with younger people about how this fight has changed their life, not just the the reality of the pandemic and the fact that they can't go to school and are stuck at home, but but that the activism that they're participating in has kind of reoriented their life? One activist I talked to, Shia Bastida, she's a fairly prominent young climate activist. She's been called like the Greta Thunberg of the U.S. and her family. I mean, they left New York City um, a few a few weeks ago because they lived in this apartment where you know young people and old people were sharing the same elevator, and they were just really worried about getting people sick and stuff. So they've been uprooted. Her parents are here on work visas, and so their jobs are they, they still have jobs, but they're kind of newly uncertain. And if they lose those jobs, then they would not be able to stay in the U.S. So I mean, there were all these ways that you know, for her, it was about more than like losing prom. And I think a lot of young people are feeling those effects. Emma, the affordable housing activist I talked to, who also works on a bunch of other issues. I'm 18 and I've been trying to file for unemployment too. So all of the things that are happening, I think, impact young people just as much. She just lost her part-time job um, because it was a teaching job. The school closed. And so she was like, like millions of Americans, she was trying to file for unemployment. She wasn't able to get through. She kept trying. She woke up like all these different like wacky hours trying to see if she could get through and wasn't able to submit it. So um, definitely they were like seeing the effects up close. 
So what does it mean that this younger generation is fighting so hard to draw attention to things like income inequality and sustainable health care in the context of a health crisis? Yeah, I mean, I think the experts that I talked to felt like it really was a reflection of some of the conditions they grew up in, like inequality, as inequality was rising in the U.S., they're coming of age as Bernie Sanders is really becoming a political force. He's starting this huge political movement and shaking up the Democratic platform. So it made sense to them that they would be approaching the pandemic in this way, that a lot of them would be seeing it in that bigger context. And I think the big question for like one of the researchers I talked to who studies young people's political engagement was like, as this incredible like worldwide defining crisis shapes this generation, right, as they're entering adulthood, like will that translate into participation at the ballot box, right? Because they are this, I mean, young people generally don't turn out in as high numbers. Um, They will be, Gen Z will be one in 10 eligible American voters um, in November. But the big question for them was like, yeah, like, do they show up, especially as the coronavirus kind of disrupts a lot of the traditional ways that campaigns would reach out to first time voters and would get them on those mailing lists and stuff. They weren't really sure what we'll be seeing there. Hannah Knowles is a general assignment reporter for The Post. And now one more thing. On Monday night, Joe Biden's presidential campaign posted its fundraising numbers for the month of March. He raised nearly $47 million. That's the biggest amount since the start of the campaign. The majority of that cash was raised in the first two weeks of the month, after Biden's series of primary wins. But once the campaign went fully virtual because of the coronavirus, things got more challenging. Typically, high-end private fundraiser is a very fancy event where very wealthy people get super dressed up and attend in person. They pay in advance, usually the maximum amount that you can pay to donate to a presidential campaign. They mingle over cocktails or a nice dinner, and they usually listen to the politicians speak first. Sometimes it's an extremely intimate event with these politicians. They can shake their hand, get photos with the politicians. They can ask them questions, have one-on-one conversations. I'm Michelle Yehili, and I cover money and politics at The Washington Post. I am in my tiny closet, which has just enough space for me to crouch down on the floor. This is not how fundraisers are running anymore. They are pretty much a typical Zoom call now. People get an individual code that you can use to sign in to a Zoom call. Some donors at first weren't sure exactly how they should dress for these Zoom fundraisers. They weren't sure if they should wear the usual cocktail attire, like in a tuxedo or a suit or a nice dress. Do you put on makeup? What do you do? And then where do you set up in your living room? And then you see the politician and and you're not really used to seeing yourself in this sort of a setting. So some donors were getting frustrated about the angles on the video call. I mean, none of us look good on Zoom calls, let's be honest. This logistical limitation has definitely led to less money flowing into these campaigns. Typically, in the spring of an election year, this is a busy time. They may have 
daily fundraisers and they would be crisscrossing the country hosting and appearing and talking to donors. But now they're limited to hosting the virtual events and it's a little hard to get people to, you know, RSVP and send in donations at this time. And then there's the added complication of the fact that it's quite sensitive to be asking people for money right now. People who are worried about their health, worried about their family, adjusting to social distancing, the last thing they really want is to be hit up for money and to be hit up for money for politics. One solution that some fundraisers have come up with is jointly signing fundraising appeals so that not just one person's name is on a fundraising ask because they're worried that if one person is sending all these emails and asks of other donors and that person may be targeted for trying to raise money during a global pandemic. So people are coming together and raising money as a group. For some congressional candidates, I've heard of people raising money for each other because it looks better to try to raise money for your fellow congressional candidate than for your own campaign. They're not raising as much money as they would hope to right now, but they're also saving a lot of money. Typically, your biggest expenses of a campaign are staff salaries, staff travel, and candidate travel. They're only paying for one of those right now, which is salaries. So they're saving a lot of money on plane tickets, Uber rides, fundraising event venue costs, and they're making up for some of the lack of fundraising that way. Michelle Lee covers money and politics for The Post. Sorry, my cat's trying to get in. <laughs> I saw a tiny paw under the door. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. After Monday's episode about food supply disruptions and grocery store workers, we received a lot of feedback and questions. So the reporters on those stories, Laura Riley and Abba Batarai, they're going to be jumping into the Post Reports Facebook group to answer your questions about what you're seeing and experiencing at the grocery store. To join the discussion, go to facebook.com slash groups slash post reports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, The Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen.